was all that money I made last year for Whitey on the Moon, how come I ain't got no money here? Hmm, Whitey's on the Moon. I said you're welcome, Neil. This is hell. Okie doke. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model since 1996. This is hell, your daily completely listener-supported source of agita. If you want to support This Is Hell, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support, or you can go to patreon.com slash thisishell and subscribe to our Patreon podcast, which is broadcast live every Friday here at thisishell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show in alphabetical order. Our Alex Jerry. Alex, how is your week going so far? Uh, it's good. I'm real pumped by uh, that Vincent Brown interview yesterday. It's one of my favorite things we've ever done on the show. What the hell happened to your voice? Oh, I'm sick. From... Over here trying not. Uh, maybe it was from how good the interview was. <laughs> uh, trying not to get Jonas. It's not the uh, biological warfare that is a child in your home. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, that's just a given. <laughs> and Jonah Tomko Smith is also producing this week. Jonah, how are you? Uh, pretty good. Just found out I have a gas leak in my minor gas leak in my apartment coming out of the stove. So that isn't why you missed the show last week, is it? I hope you weren't Honestly, sleeping for the last five days. It might be. <laughs> <laughs> that that might be the reason, to be quite honest. <laughs> I'm having a minor gas leak, but it's just having a different nature today. Oh my lord! Fortunately, I'm not feeling well at all. It, you know, when we did four-hour shows, I would have to cancel a show whenever I had an attack of diverticulitis because there's just no way I could sit down for four straight hours. But for an hour, it's okay. I can just sit here and be in all the pain I want. By the way, if I fall over unconscious, the number you should call is 911. Today, business as usual has been devastating for planet earth climate change will affect hundreds of millions of lives as humanity flees from rising shorelines for higher ground but why stop there why not go for the highest ground possible like a constellation of floating space stations that orbit the earth or a human colony on the moon or mars while there are some who want to abandon spaceship earth now that it has been ruined by us and capitalism. Others believe by going to space, we can save the planet. These investors, entrepreneurs, and hopeful space profiteers are currently taking advantage of NASA's inability for the first time since Apollo to launch a ship into space. But what happens when space exploration is determined by the bottom line? When it becomes about big business and not about science? What happens when capitalism, as it exists now here on Earth in its late stages, what happens when it's launched into space with all its deregulation and lacking of oversight. Can capitalism exploit space, ruining it any more than it already has our planet? We'll try to figure out what a future of space exploration dominated by billionaires out to make money might look like when we talk to journalist Peter Ward, author of The Consequential Frontier, challenging the privatization of space. You can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Ward Journo. In fact, this week's winner to the question from hell for our listening audience gets Peter's book, The 
consequential frontier challenging the privatization of space. Alex, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell for our listening audience and uh, Blade Runner fans out there is, uh, <laughs> what awaits you in the off-world colonies? What awaits you in the off-world colonies? What awaits you in the off-world colonies? God, I hate the word colonies being in there, but all right. That does sound very hellish. What awaits you in the off-world colonies? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, Chuck or Alex, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Again, that makes this week's question from hell for our listening audience what awaits you in the off-world colonies what awaits you in the off-world colonies the person with the best answer to this week's question from hell gets peter ward's book which we're about to discuss the consequential frontier challenging the privatization of space alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest yesterday when we had historian and award-winning writer vincent brown on the show to discuss his book tacky's revolt the story of an atlantic slave War, Vincent mentioned something at the very beginning of our conversation that came up last night while I was watching, unfortunately, I should say, I was unfortunately watching, the nightly network TV national news. And I'll watch it so you don't have to, but I'm not going to watch it very often. But still, you don't have to. There's nothing really news about the news anymore. Vincent was telling us about the geographical com compartmentalization of history, as if history stopped at the borders, any nation's border, any more than climate change or financial crises or war does, you know, the most significant historical events of the last half century. That led me to ask Vincent if all history is nothing more than nationalist propaganda, considering how it is constrained to the events and their impact in country without any consideration of any regional hemispheric or global effects. Vincent said that there are historians like himself who are trying to see beyond borders, historians without borders, historians sans frontier, if you will, which is great. And I'm betting they're, are, they are all very informed by the late great historian Howard Zinn and his curricula and his people's histories, which consider those who were victimized by colonialism, unlike conventional history, which glorifies colonialism's triumphs while completely erasing its crimes against humanity. During the short walk from here in our studios, the office here, to my home last night, I couldn't stop thinking about what Vincent had said and the impact this geographical compartmentalization of history might mean for the way we understand the world, because it might mean that each and every nation of the world has taught their citizens completely different histories, and what that might mean for any uh, potential universal cooperation and understanding is not that great. Because if we all believe different stories about the world to be true, it's going to be difficult to find the common ground necessary for things like, I don't know, world peace. Learning and teaching and understanding history in that way makes war seem almost inevitable. Who knows? Maybe that was the intent. Maybe, as Vincent was arguing, our military-industrial complex is born out of capitalism's need for slavery to survive its early days and to create global superpowers and empires. Maybe the only way... We can keep all these poor people poor with slave-like working conditions and sweatshop wages under the thumbs of dictators is through constant wars imposed on poorer nations by the historically wealthier ones in the West, like, you know, in the past, Spain and Britain and the U.S. With that frightening conspiracy rattling around my head, I got home. Nobody was there but the cats. 
did a bong hit, opened a beer, sat down to watch the night, nightly national news, and I saw Vincent's theory being applied in a different way. Instead of the geographic compartmentalization of history, what I was watching on the news was the temporal compartmentalization of news. That is, the news is what happened that day within the last 24, maybe 36 hours if it's early in the week and they're still recapping news from the weekend catching up. But the news is what happened within the last daily news media cycle. That's it, that's all it covers. They dig deep down, burrow down on the day's activities, considering every bit of minutia and speculating on what anything might mean. And the next day they're on to the next 24 hours, almost as, almost as if the prior day did not matter and didn't exist. When limiting the news to what happened that day, you lose context, you lose sight of the bigger picture, you lose the knowledge of what's really happening in the real world, and you end up with viewers the day after 9-11 asking, why do they hate us? Because despite watching the news diligently every night, they had no clue that anyone could pose any kind of threat to the mainland U.S. or its citizens. I mean, sure, they sank the USS Cole, but that's a military target and it was overseas, so that's got nothing to do with our safety and security back here in the States. Focusing on just the day's news keeps you from realizing and recognizing, acknowledging that those events did not occur out of nowhere on that day. There was history that led to what happened happening. The world isn't made up of random things that happen daily and their impact only exists within a news cycle, whatever that is, because they don't have news cycles on my calendar. It's like the news puts blinders on us so we are not jolted by all of the reasons racing around us, all of the past that led up to whatever nightmare we woke up to today. The next time I sadly even accidentally watch the national network TV news right at the top of the program when they say the day and date, like it's Tuesday, January 28th, 2020, and these are today's headlines, I'm going to keep in mind that they really are reporting the news of that singular day as if it exists in a vacuum without any context, without any understanding, without any history. And when your information lacks all of that, what you end up with is an ignorance that reinforces the idea of American innocence. Maybe that's the whole point. Living without context from day to day makes it so we all know the U.S. never does anything wrong. We're not guilty of anything completely innocent while we wage wars around the world against, well, who knows? I don't. America's wars are not the kind of news that makes the news anymore, unless a U.S. soldier dies. Then it's news. The U.S. military killing others? Not news. Although that would be handy context to understanding the deaths of U.S. soldiers. Which is why, every time I stupidly watch the national network TV news, I'm reminded, this is hell. We got an email from our conversation with Vincent from Stephen at Simon & Schuster, who writes, Hello, Chuck. I just listened to the excellent Vincent Brown episode and wanted to put on your radar University of Maryland professor and Simon & Schuster author Richard Bell, his book, Stolen Five Free Boys Kidnapped into Slavery and Their Astonishing Odyssey Home, spans from Philadelphia to Mississippi while exposing the horrid slavery black market of kidnapping free men from the north into slavery in the south. You can find more info at simonandschuster.com, of course, and look for Richard Bell on YouTube. I am happy to send you a complimentary review copy and connect you with Richard if there is interest in pursuing an interview when the time is right. Thanks, Stephen. No 
thank you, Stephen. And yes, we have requested a copy of Richard's book, and we look forward to possibly having him as a guest on the show in the future. Coming up, the commercialization of space is already happening, so it's about time we consider what happens when we launch capitalism as it exists today into space. I'm going to have another email from a listener, and this one is from a listener in Cuba with a very interesting perspective on the Cuban medical system, and they're going to be coming and visiting here in Chicago in February, so I want to read that and share that with all of you as well. Alex will also have some of your answers to this week's question from Hal, which is, what awaits you in the off-world colonies? What awaits in the off-world colonies? The person with the best answer to this week's question gets the book we're about to discuss with its author, Peter Ward's The Consequential Frontier, challenging the privatization of space, live from capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. What happens when space exploration is no longer guided by scientific inquiry and is instead driven by the desire to reap in profits? What if instead of considering space exploration in terms of benefiting humanity, we instead think of it only as a way to make money and to help out the bottom line? What happens when we launch late capitalism into space? Here to help us consider the implications of a privatized space, journalist Peter Ward is author of The Consequential Frontier, challenging the privatization of space. You can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Ward Journal. Welcome to This Is Hell, Peter. Hey, Chuck. Great to be on the show. It's great to have you on the show. You sound fantastic. You write, we marched into the cold abyss of space in the name of science as nations flung their best and bravest off our planet to find the truths of our universe. But the mission is changing rapidly. While exploration efforts continue further afield, the tiny band of space close to our home is fast becoming a place of business, profits, and private companies. Corporations could soon rule the cosmos. And for all the dramatic warnings in science fiction, nobody is paying enough attention to the consequences. What explains why we're not paying attention to those consequences? Do we simply have some sort of collective faith in business to do what's best for humanity, whether it's in space or elsewhere? Or is it simply that we believe it's out of our control? Um, I, I guess it's a combination of a lot of things. I think for a lot of people, it seems um, just too much like science fiction. It's it's kind of too far in the future to even consider um, when you say that we're going to have kind of a... a a whole commercialization of a fleet of space stations orbiting the earth that sounds like it's from a movie um so i think for some people it's just way too far in the future um for others they think uh, and justifiably so that there's more important things to focus on um but i think all of that kind of ignores the fact that um it is happening um and there's little we can do to to stop it um and uh, and no one's really paying attention enough to the kind of people who are doing it um and then there are the kind of the really uh, space enthusiasts, and, and they really want to go to space and do amazing things in space any way they can. So they will happily let kind of uh, Jeff Bezos or someone like that do whatever he needs to do as long as we get further into space. You're right. The moon landing opened up a host of possibilities in space, and many imagined the inevitable moon bases, settlements on Mars, and manned exploration missions to the further reaches of the solar system that would surely follow. But over 50 years later, they're still waiting. Extraordinary feats have been accomplished since. We've landed on a meteor, sent a probe out of the solar system, put robots on Mars, but nothing has captured the world's amazement like the moon landing and the startling pace at which America reached the lunar surface. Again, that was within only a decade. Have we 
lost our romantic relationship with space? And has that lo lost romance led to a popular tolerance of the privatization of space? Because nobody really cares about space anymore. Uh, I think so to some extent. Yeah, we, we haven't had the kind of amazing um, uh, events like landing on the moon for a very long time. I think the thing that got kind of close to that actually was SpaceX and when the two rockets uh, boosters came back down in tandem and, and landed uh, to be reused again. I think that really did capture the public imagination again. Um, but yeah, I think we all, we all kind of have over the years, there's been a frustration that, you know, when when America did land on the moon, it was expected by now that we would have a colony on the moon that would be have more people landing on the moon on a regular basis and, and have gone to other planets. So there has been that slowdown and it's kind of letting people who just want to get it done no matter what. And, and that ultimately leads to people that want to make profit out of it uh, getting through the door. And you point out that one of the major advances has been the International Space Station, which is, I mean, it's a wonder of the world that they actually have an International Space Station that's been orbiting for so long, functioning for so long, and being able to do so much. But the problem is, is that we really don't know how much when what they're actually doing. How much does secrecy or a lack of the ability of NASA or other space agencies to actually tell the public what they are doing and put it in human terms, how much of the problem with our interest in space is because of a lack of an ability or a willingness to communicate with the public what they are doing in space? Yeah, I think that's, that is a big part of it. You get these sort of big missions and they're very exciting, but most of the launches into space are for military reasons. Um, most of the satellite launches are, are for, you know, um, spy satellites and things like that. So there is a lot that goes on in space that we just don't know about and we don't know why it's happening. We don't know what it's been doing for. Um, so, I mean, obviously that's concerning for anyone sort of launching anything into space. You don't know what it's going to do. Um, especially when it's being done by the military. So that has overtaken to a certain extent. And then I think just a kind of normalization, like a, a rocket launch is no longer that exciting for people anymore. It's not something that's going to be on national TV. Um, unfortunately, it's only going to make the news if something bad happens. Uh, so I think those two kind of things combined have, have made us kind of switch off a little bit from space. Are the military and big business the only ones who are capable of space exploration? Have governments become so weak or so poorly resourced that our only options for space are either exploration for business purposes or for military strategies? I think uh, I think there there is like NASA obviously still does some great things. They they've just kind of ceded the territory that's close to home, and and they kind of go further out now. So you see they do some great things. They do flybys of, of Pluto and, and other planets and things like that. Um, so they are doing great things. They're just further away from home, and they're less likely to involve actual human you know boots on the ground. That's a bad expression, but um, kind of applicable here. Um, so I think. Um, you essentially have um, less, uh, I, I guess, uh, less people going for the right reasons is, is the overall problem. You write that when driven by money, man mankind has historically made decisions that in hindsight reveal themselves to have been short-sighted and detrimental to the species. In space, the consequences of such decisions would be just as disastrous out there as here on Earth. Yeah, but you, can, you can't destroy space like you can destroy our lived environment here on Earth. Besides, if you pollute up in space, it's up in space, not here on Earth. So doesn't space allow us to be a bit more reckless than we might be here down on Earth? Aren't we safe from what happens in space? 
Uh, I guess that's that's true to a certain extent. But if you if you think about what Jeff Bezos said um, a few months ago, and he was actually lauded for saying so, he he said that his reason for wanting to go to space is that he wants to move all um, industrial. Uh, processes and put them on the moon. So move every factory and manufacturing and put it on the moon. So we no longer have any of that pollution here on Earth, which is is great in theory. It, it could be massive for for you know improving the climate of, of our Earth. Um, but if you think about Jeff Bezos doing that, you know if you see the stranglehold that he's taken on the on the e-commerce and, and commerce in general around the world, imagine one man that powerful who had. Uh, I imagine Amazon would be the only people flying up and down to this manufacturing hub on the moon. Um, it's ripe for monopolization. It's, so any commercial activities that you have put up there in space, it, it could make one of the most powerful people here on Earth even more powerful and have even more control over things that we desperately need. And then when you throw people up there, if you do start a colony, then that puts even more power in the hands of a corporation. So if you had a corporation-run colony on the moon, for example, um, they that any person living there would rely on that one corporation, not just for food and water, but also for oxygen. So it's that kind of complete control that people could have in space, and and that could translate to more power here on Earth, which is the last thing we need, really. And you, uh, just, as you were just saying, it's ripe for a monopolization. Is the issue then not necessarily Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or the privatization of space? Is the real issue the state of capitalism, of late capitalism, of neoliberalism, whatever you want to call this era of capitalism, that makes capitalism itself ripe for a monopolization? Yeah, I mean, I think so. And I think that that goes back to the space thing and, and, and that we we kind of almost hero worship some of these people that are driving this this late capitalism which we see um, and so to see these guys blasting off into space and, and doing great things there it's only going to in, increase that that hero worshiping um, and you know space like you said is a is a kind of blank place it's it's you know devoid of, of life as far as we know but that means it's kind of a it's a blank canvas, and that it, we only take up there uh, what we want to take. So if we go there with capitalism in mind and with this attitude of, of late capitalism, which we have in society today, then we're just going to recreate another another version of hell. Just this one is going to be much harder to breathe. You describe. <laughs> uh, thank you. That was very good, Peter. You describe uh, once the first stage of a rocket has spent its fuel and delivered its payload to a certain height, it falls away, and the second and later stages take over. When NASA lost its ride into space, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos had already made significant progress on their space startups, SpaceX and Blue Origin, and were eager to take over. And you point out how the two have very different views on how space can benefit humanity. You explain Musk has often spoken of his desire to retire on Mars and has made it his life's goal. He heartily endorses the Plan B point of view, which was perfectly summed up by Carl Sagan when he said all civilizations either become spacefaring or extinct. Musk continues to be motivated by the fear of humanity here on Earth imploding or causing another dark age. How do you think fear might manifest itself in decision-making related to space exploration. What happens when your pursuit of exploring the stars is driven by a desire to flee Earth and leave it all behind as soon as possible out of constant terrorizing fear? Yeah, it's it's, it's very scary thought to, to think that we could 
get to the point where we're running out of options where space becomes our only chance of survival um so if if things continue as they are continuing with our environment with our climate um we may see a spaceship more as a kind of lifeboat rather than a, a means of exploration um and in that case then we're not going to see increased regulation and we're not going to see people holding people into account we're just going to get to somewhere any way we can so a base on the moon any way we can a base on mars any way we can just to have that that plan b as musk subscribes to so yeah it's, it's pretty terrifying to think that, that that could be our only option of survival as a species is is to blast off to another planet i mean we've there's a, been a, a huge list of failures to get us to that point, but it is actually a realistic future for us now, um, which makes it even more important to think about this now. Because if it be does become, if Plan B does become Plan A, then we probably should have been thinking about this, you know, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years prior. That lifeboat mentality, I've heard it uh, applied in a couple of different ways. One is via, you know, uh, colony on Mars and fleeing the Earth. And I actually heard people back in 2008 during the financial crisis telling me that if things aren't going to work out for them, they have a lifeboat idea. And their lifeboat idea was to move to Detroit because in Detroit you had a blank slate and you had cheap housing and you might be able to avoid all of the problems of the financial crisis and the fallout of the housing boom, uh, housing bubble exploding. So when you think about that lifeboat mentality, how would fear and profit-driven pursuit of space technology affect those of us who are left behind, the ones who can't afford the lifeboat that takes us into space. What happens to the rest of us when the Elon Musks and, uh, is con are considering, hey, we're just going to flee? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a huge problem. Obviously, there's only so many seats on a lifeboat, and if they're going to be sold on an auction or for the you know for the highest bidder, then uh, the rest of us are all going to be left here on Earth to, to deal with the consequences. Um, and if it is a private company, then there's no two ways about it. It will be a seat for sale. It won't be you know, some great humanitarian um, thing where we get millions and millions and millions of people to Mars or to Moon in, in time. Um, so I think it's a pretty dire outlook for the vast majority of us who wouldn't be able to afford a, a seat on a spaceship. Uh, the one thing we can hope for is that technology um, brings the price down to such an extent that it would be uh, affordable for us and it is coming down very fast um, but I think uh, unfortunately if it, it was a case of a, of a global crisis then uh, I don't think it would be a, a sort of women and children first mentality I think it would be the, the rich and the wealthy first and the rest of us kind of scrambling to, to survive and whatever's left. You write Bezos on the other hand unlike Musk believes humanity needs to go into space to save Earth as you were pointing out earlier not humanity you then uh, cite Bezos's plan I hate the plan B argument I think plan B with respect to Earth being destroyed is make sure that plan A works we've sent robotic probes to every planet in the solar system believe me this is the best one we have we know that it's not even close my friends who say they want to move to Mars or something I say why don't you live in Antarctica for a year first because it's a garden paradise compared to Mars. So why does Bezos want to explore uh, space? What's the point of Blue Origin, if not getting out of Dodge? Yeah, I think most of his, his uh, motivations are, he, he's, he subscribes to the view of, uh, of space exploration kind of lifting up humanity. Um, so the more we achieve in space, the, 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 
the higher it raises the bar and and, uh, and the more technologies it creates and uh, and he also thinks that we can save the earth's climate by by moving things onto the mars and onto the moon um so i mean that that philosophy is is kind of i, I guess it's comparable to trickle down economics in a way that i'm not sure it quite reaches the bottom uh this kind of sense of of inspiration um so it's it's very much a, a billionaire's point of view i think very much a billionaire's point of view you write in may 2019 the blue origin origin moon lander had announced uh, bezos announced he wanted to make move all of the earth's heavy industry and mining into space as you were saying to preserve our planet and fight for climate change this idea would see earth become zoned for light industry and uh, residential purposes he also revealed his ambitions to launch a constellation of gigantic space stations where people would live alleviating overpopulation i found that to be contradictory of his idea of not abandoning earth are are his imagined constellation of gigantic space stations where people would live still a way of escape a plan b like musk's a plan b that bezos does not support yeah i mean it, it seems seems that way it's 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 hard with bezos because he doesn't really explain what he's doing and that's one of the great problems with blue origin is that you never really know what what their ultimate goal is whether they want to introduce internet whether they want to go to the to the moon you never really know and that's what makes it really dangerous so this is the world's richest man doing whatever he wants in space and we don't know what he's doing um with these space stations that's um i mean it depends who lives on the space stations if it if it was uh you know a wealthy elite living on space stations while we all crawl around in the mud here on earth and and that would be uh disturbing but if also it's just the people that are making it overcrowded here on earth and being sent up to space stations that's also equally disturbing so um it, either way it, it is a kind of escape it's a plan b um so uh yeah he's kind of contradicting himself there and that's the whole point of your book your whole point of your book is to consider what the consequences will be when if we do privatize commercialized space and in the future of space exploration we're talking to journalist peter ward author of the consequential frontier challenging the privatization of space you write perhaps the most pertinent analogy and certainly the most used when it comes to space exploration and its success with the private sector is the spread of railroads across America in the late 19th century. Railroad expansion was fairly slow until private companies were given the means and the resources to build links across the country and make huge profits and profits in the process. The expansion was hailed as a great success for the private sector, pushing through a frontier with a full force of capitalism and enabling the United States to grow into one of the world's superpowers in a very short period of time what would robin robber barons look like in space because this was during the era of robber barons when wealthy industrialists who operated in often unethical or unscrupulous ways would still benefit society through patronage like through education or the arts like the carnegies did how might this kind of robber baron oligopoly oligopolistic and monopolistic power over space how might that manifest itself uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, they they love to use. I think people within the private space love to use the railroad analogy, and and it does kind of work. I mean, thankfully, there's no, there's no kind of native species on the, in the space that we know of to to kind of to destroy. Um, but in, in terms of uh, the, the the kind of oligarchy and things like that, I think um, I think if we find resources on the moon, for example, so um, 
it's almost certain that there is water under the under the moon's surface um, and some kind of ice. So from that, we can get hydrogen, and hydrogen is one of the things to refuel uh, rocket ships. So there's a big kind of push to make the moon essentially a gigantic gas station where uh, you would you would mine the resources from the moon to get the hydrogen, and then you would refuel a rocket ship, uh, which would kind of go into orbit on the moon, be refueled from those resources, and there would they would fly off further into into the solar system. Um, so as soon as you mention resource gathering, obviously that um, that brings with it all the terrible things that's happened in human history. Whenever we found resources, we found some way to fight over it. Um, so you'd have these these guys that would have you you essentially have private companies fighting over resources on a on another part of the the, the solar system. Um, so that that would be kind of terrible. And you'd, you'd, I guess, have these kind of mini economies that would break out around these resource gatherings, just in the way that it happened happened in Earth. When we find oil, a town, a town is brought up and uh, around it, and you have these kind of this economy builds around it. Um, so really, you can see how we're just destined to repeat what we've done before, essentially. And this time, though, I think there's more scope for these people, these powerful, wealthy individuals to have even more power because it would be a, just an ultimate total monopoly where you would rely on this one person for your oxygen, for your food and everything. So are we just as interested in resource exploitation? Is that just as much of a priority today when it comes to space as it was during the set, settler colonial era? Is this the exact same thing that we're seeing brought into space? Because the thing that I can't wrap my mind around, Peter, is why we believe that we can leave all of our problems behind once we go into space, that somehow we'll be able to create some utopia, that we'll be able to shed our history of everything that we've ever done. Why is there this idea that we can change who we are simply by going to space and erasing all of our history? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Um, I think, unfortunately, a large part of it is that the people doing this have watched Star Trek and are big fans of Star Trek and they see that it worked there. Um, and it's, it's, it's this hope that we can build this, this utopian, uh, future, uh, in, in space kind of drives them. They think that because it's a blank slate, because it's starting from zero, that they can build their own rules that they can, they can, uh, for example, Elon Musk thinks that when he builds his Mars colony, he's kind of toys with the idea of a, a direct democracy. Um, in a system on Mars. Um, uh, weirdly, if you are in a colony, though, it, it does kind of lend itself more to, to uh, if you really want to run a colony well on another planet where there's no oxygen and, uh, and things like that, then it does um, lend itself more to kind of socialist or, or communist um, philosophies because really everyone has to be working for the common good. Everyone has to be looked after. If, if you're in a, a, certainly in the early stages of a colony, then um, you really need everyone doing their job and everyone, everyone pitching in together, helping out each other because you can't have, uh, you know, a, 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 a sort of a whole lot of people not doing anything or, or falling sick. Um, but unfortunately, the other way of doing that is, is to have an elite and a lot of workers working for you. So it's it's really going to go. It's going to swing one way or the other, essentially. Yeah, I just find that it, it, it's, it sounds like we have this very successful capitalist, this person who's made a ton of money, Elon Musk, and now he has some sort of 
socialist plot for a space colony. It sounds very uh, counterintuitive. So I don't. I, how much? Uh, how much should we put into the idea that a capitalist who has had such great success here on Earth would then want to ditch capitalism and go for socialism on another Mars colony? Yeah, it's really weird. Um, strangely, a lot of um, this this thought process, a lot of it comes from um, kind of pre-revolutionary Russia. Um, and there was a there was a, a school of thought called Cosmism, uh, which was a guy called Nikolai Fedorov, and 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 his whole thing was about he he basically birthed transhumanism, um, and and that feeling, and that was basically humans conquering nature, or not conquering nature, but fusing with nature and controlling it, and becoming one and essentially creating our own god, and and that that weirdly drives a lot of people, and it goes wildly against their kind of capitalist tendencies but the, the mysticism and the and the awful one the futuristic parts of it really appeals to these kind of people like elon musk you were mentioning earlier that privatization might drive down costs of traveling to space does privatization then does that possibly mean a democratization of space because lower costs means more access can you know because a lot of people who are listening to this show or not or people who are critical of privatization and certainly of commercialization of space is this one of the advantages that can be created by privatization and commercialization of space a more democratized space yeah, yeah. I mean, there are definitely some advantages to to privatization of space. Uh, for example, things will will undoubtedly happen faster, and they will get cheaper just because of the way, um, you know, contracts are handed out and the way innovation occurs. Um, it's just at, at what cost, basically, uh, is the question. And if you could have a sort of thriving, uh, well-regulated space economy, which had, you know, several competitors for every single field, then you then it could theoretically work out okay. Um, it, it's just that the likelihood, the, the, the barriers to entry are so high, you do need to be so rich to, to actually get people off the earth and into space that, that it's very unlikely to happen, unfortunately. You're right. We look set to head into murky waters in the quest to make it safe for humans to travel long distances in the universe. And when companies reach the moon and other planets, they plan to sidestep the most important treaty attempting to protect our interests in space. At every turn, there is inequality, exclusivity, and potential for exploitation. The treaty you're mentioning is the Outer Space Treaty, the OST, which you describe as the most important legal framework of international space law. It was set forth by the United Nations in 1967. As you point out, the OST is the most important legal framework of international space law. Uh, it exclusively reser reserves the use of the moon and other celestial bodies for peaceful purposes and expressly prohibits their use for testing weapons of any kind, conducting military maneuvers, or establishing military bases, installations, and fortifications. However, the treaty does not prohibit the placement of conventional weapons in orbit, and thus some highly destructive attack strategies, such as kinetic bombardment, in which an object is dropped from orbit, gaining very high speed and causing enormous damage upon impact on the Earth, are still potentially allowable. What is the likelihood that space has already been militarized far more than we are aware? And what kind of oversight and enforcement is there of the OST? How much faith can we put in the Outer Space Treaty, the Outer Space Treaty to keep us safe from space? Yeah, the, the Outer Space Treaty obviously is, is very old, um, and it was written in a way to ensure that everyone would sign up to it. So it does have its ambiguities and it has its legal loopholes. So you could really, it, it's it's full of loopholes essentially. You could you could argue, you could take that 
thing to a court. I don't know which court would you would be in, but um, and you could argue against doing pretty much anything in it um, and saying that it does allow it in some way, uh, perhaps aside from weapons of mass destruction. Um, but yeah, the, the fact that. Um, it, it was written so long ago and we've moved on so much since then. I mean, we hadn't even landed on the moon at that point. Um, it just shows how outdated it is. Um, and it didn't even consider the privatization of space. It didn't even consider commercial space companies. So they could argue that they could do almost almost anything they want. You, but, uh, go ahead. Sorry, no, no, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, you write of the OST, the treaty also states that the exploration of outer space shall be done to benefit all countries and that space shall be free for exploration and use by all states. I, maybe this is just me. Maybe it's just the vagary of the language. Doesn't that mean that there can be no privatization of space? I mean, if how can the profits for a single company benefit all countries? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, I mean, for me, that would seem pretty clear cut. But from from all this, the space lawyers I, I spoke to, and, and there are space lawyers. Um, there's a whole community of space lawyers, in fact. Um, they they say differently. They and people have already argued against things in the Outer Space Treaty. For example, the the Outer Space Treaty says that you cannot claim part of uh, the moon or another planet. You can't claim that territory. Um, so many believe that that meant that you couldn't claim take resources from that from that same place so essentially saying you can't take resources from somewhere unless you colonize it and you're not allowed to colonize it but um america has already already passed legislation saying that you can uh take resources from the moon and it doesn't mean that you have colonized it uh and i think a couple of other countries have, have followed suit so there's already been already been holes picked in the outer space treaty gigantic holes um and and that they're only going to get more, and more it's only going to get more and more irrelevant as time goes on unfortunately especially when it comes up against the, the lobbying power of of uh, of billion dollar companies you write in January 1967, the UK, Soviet Union, the US signed the document along with 57 other countries ratifying it, and it went into effect in October of that year. You were just talking about how corporate lobbyists might have an impact on the OST. Uh, is that what is currently taking place right now? Is Are Bezos and Musk currently trying to get the US to break the Outer Space Treaty in order to be able to do whatever privatization of space that they want? Uh, yeah, I mean, there's no indication that those two companies or those two individuals are doing it themselves, but there are, there's definitely a lot going on. Like Ted Cruz, for example, has already spoken out uh, a couple of years ago about the Outer Space Treaty and, and how it should be changed. It's, it's kind of, um, I guess, politicians who are in control of, uh, of states which rely on the, the uh, space sector for a lot of jobs. Um, so it's not just coming from the commercial side, it's also coming from the government side because NASA is a huge job creator. So um, anything that's going to create more jobs in NASA is, is going to be lobbied for um, by politicians uh, who who have those jobs in, the, in their states. Um, so, so yeah, Ted Cruz is one of the people um, that has mentioned it in the past. And obviously that uh, tells you all you need to know, really. <laughs> <laughs> you write the unfortunate irony of commercial expansion into space is that regulations will likely drop off as more companies enter the sector, meaning more players abiding by fewer rules. So is space exploration inevitably set to become increasingly dangerous? I I think so. I mean, I think the, the thing about private sp 
I guess when NASA goes into space, they have so many regulations, so many rules, because it's a national disaster if something goes wrong and someone, uh, everyone gets fired. Um, the president himself is, is hurt um, by it. Whereas, um, so you have, you, you kind of, in the past, you were blasting off these, these heroes into space. And if one of them died, then it was, it was an absolute disaster. So they are much more risk averse. Whereas the private companies, um, yes, they have shareholders and they don't want to upset shareholders, but um, it's not as big a disaster if something goes wrong. They, they you know, it's this Silicon Valley um, attitude of move fast and break things that they're, they're quite happy to break things on their way to space. Um, so that coupled with the lobbying pressure to, to kind of decrease regulations. And also there's this weird, um, well, I guess it's not weird. It's, it's very in keeping with what's happened here on earth. Um, but uh, the flags convenience issue where you see countries wanting to attract uh, the space industry to their country. So um, they're lowering their, lowering their regulations and, and lowering the, the way they tax these companies to try and get them to, to launch from their, from their country or to at least have operations in their country. And weirdly, one of the countries that is doing that is, is Luxembourg. So Luxembourg is quickly becoming an important country for space. Well, you're right. The startup uh, world has long raged against regulations, but these libertarian attitudes simply won't work in the harsh environment of space where safety and freedom are far from guaranteed. While nobody wants international regulation to limit innovation, there must be a balance. Why in space are freedoms far from guaranteed? Uh, I guess because you always rely on someone else. Um, you, you, it's very hard to go out and do something on your own in space just because of the harsh reality. Uh, it's the same. I think if you're in any harsh environment here on Earth, um, you all, will always rely on someone else for your uh, resources. You can't do things on your own. You can't go out and uh, uh, you probably can't even man a rocket on your own, to be honest. You, you, you have to have a community. You have to have people helping each other. Everyone must have their job. Everyone must do uh, what's right for, for a common goal. Um, so in, in that way, I think that's why you see, you know, the kind of the attitudes that, that you see in, in Star Trek, these kind of utopian futures where we're all coming together as humanity and, and going off to explore space and, and it's all, all for one. Um, but um, yeah, whether, whether that actually happens or not is another question. You write, we need to temper the instincts that have brought us to the point where we need to establish a new home before we destroy this one. That means finding a way for commercial interests and the good of humanity to work side by side. But can they? Can what's good for humanity be good for profits in the bottom line when it comes to space any more than they can here on Earth? I mean, it happens sometimes, but the destructive times, it seems, uh, really, the good times don't make up for the destructive times that we've had. No, no not at all. Um... I think the one thing going for space is that is that blank canvas, um, and uh, and that we could somehow create new systems that weren't based on old discriminatory ways. Um, you know, you could you could forget. I mean, our whole uh, economy, our whole way of living is based on a you know a patriarchy. You could you could potentially eliminate that in in space. And the one thing about cold hard profits is that uh, in that vacuum. Perhaps they could also uh, ignore the fact that we have to be so terrible to other people and, and otherwise other people. Um, so uh, it's a vague hope. It's a faint hope. Uh, sometimes I can be an optimist and, and sometimes <laughs> not. Um, 
Yeah, sometimes uh, not. Yeah, so it's sometimes this is <laughs> hell. Uh, you write each country must also put their own restrictions in place when it comes to space exploration, as the onus of responsible space activities will likely always fall mostly on the shoulders of individual governments. The temptation to attract the wealth of the space industry cannot be allowed to cause a regulatory race to the bottom. But that's the direction neoliberalism has taken the world over the last 40 years. So what's stopping us from a race to the bottom of deregulated space exploration? Um, weirdly, the insurance industry at the moment. <laughs> the insurance industry is, is, is supplying some kind of regulation in itself because it costs so much to insure these, um, obviously, these, these expeditions uh, into space that... Uh, that's upholding a certain upholding a certain standard where people can't afford to drop their regulate regulatory standards. Uh, how long that'll last for? You don't know because the more we go up, obviously, you know, it, it, I think it's true in anything that the more we do it, the less uh, safe it, the the less safety standards become an issue. Um, so I think uh, I think unfortunately it's just going it, to it's inevitable that it will decrease um, the regulatory standards. Um, there is that 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 motivation to get uh, the space industry into a certain country is going to have a big impact. Um, but I think yeah, the the right now it's kind of being propped up by the fact that uh, you you will basically you need to the insurance companies will will hold you to quite a high standard. <laughs> And you also point out how, along along the lines of the railroad analogy again, uh, many people who show that as a success of the private sector uh, being very effective and efficient in creating any kind of gigantic project, uh, you point out that that project wasn't as private as people think it was, that just like the internet, when you see private sector interests saying that they it was invented by the private sector, that's simply not true. It was very much created by the government or in, in in, in the process of the railroad, aided and assisted by the government. How much is the government right now doing what it can to aid and assist private commercialized space exploration? Uh, yeah, so the, NASA has has kind of said to the to the private companies like we're, we're going to be a client of yours from now on. We're not just going to be a contract. So we we want to. Uh, uh, we want we want to take a, basically buy a ride to the moon with with you guys. So um, it is it's definitely working together with them. I think it's acknowledged that uh, NASA and, and other space agencies are going to use the private sector to get to to space essentially. Um, so there are the the thing is it's mixed messages. It, it depends who's in power. It depends uh, the, the kind of political flavor of the day. I'm sure if Donald Trump realizes he's not going to. Re- do something within his term, he'll drop it immediately, uh, and that's one of the problems with with uh, public in America with, with space projects because you there's very little incentive for for a president to to get something done when it's not going to be done in their life in their in their term span. So um, essentially, it's not going to they're not going to enjoy the fruits of what they start now, um, especially when you've got someone kind of you know as ego driven as as the current president, then it doesn't have uh, he wants to go to the moon by 2022. If that doesn't happen, then obviously he's just going to drop the whole thing, like a, you know, like he never even thought about it. Um, so it's that kind of complicated relationship for politicians. They know, um, you know, they they know that uh, if it doesn't happen within their kind of uh, time as a president, then then they don't want to get it done. 
And uh, we were talking about, or you were mentioning the private-public partnerships, as we discussed on the show in the past. Uh, yes, they can be effective at time, but often the private sector in that relationship dominates which direction that partnership is going in. And so that's another thing that we have to uh, take into consideration when we consider the privatization of space exploration. You were mentioning Donald Trump and only being concerned about his four years in office or any politician due to their two, four, six, eight years view win twice as the president of the United States. Uh, the kind of temporary short term mindset when it comes and how that undermines space exploration are politics then as they stand today in the U.S. incompatible with space exploration that benefits humanity? Uh, I, uh, I would say so. Yeah, I think that's a fairly good, uh, summarization. Um, it's, it, it's hard to see how, uh, the government can have the kind of backbone and, 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 uh, the steel that they need to stand up to the private space, uh, industry to work together. Um, uh, essentially they could hold all the doors to space, but they're kind of just opening and letting the private sector through, um, and I think it is because of that structure. It is because it's they either want to get things done very quickly, um, or they don't want to really invest in it at all. In your writing, you talk about the two driving forces right now for space exploration when it comes to the commercial and private sector, and those are resources and space tourism. I have one last question for you on space tourism. We've been speaking with journalist Peter Ward. He is author of The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space. Peter's work has appeared in GQ, Bloomberg, The Economist, and Newsweek. You can follow Peter on Twitter at Peter Ward Journo. Peter Ward Journo. You write, we will hit several major milestones in the coming years as the pace of change quickens. The launch of the new space tourism will most likely come first with Virgin Galactic racing toward the finish line and hoping to take its founder, Richard Richard Branson, to space in 2019. If they succeed, they could beat this book to publication. They did not. Around the space time, around the same time, SpaceX will take astronauts up to the International Space Station, marking the first instance a commercial rocket has launched passengers into space. These two events will legitimize private companies further, and after that, most likely spur a sharp uptick in achievements on space tourism. Last July, uh, we spoke with sociologist and award-winning writer William I. Robinson, author of Into the Tempest, Essays on the New Global Capitalism. And William writes, under the new global social apartheid, tourism is the fastest-growing economic activity and even the mainstay of many third-world economies. This does not mean that more people are actually enjoying the fruits of leisure and international travel. It means that 20% of humanity has more and more disposable income simultaneous to the contraction of consumption by the remaining 80%. This 80% is forced to provide all sorts of ever more frivolous services to and to orient its productive activity toward meeting the needs and satisfying the sumptuous desires of that 20%. Is space tourism what Robinson called the new global social apartheid in space? Uh, I think given the prices right now, you'd have to say yes. It costs $250,000 to go up to space for a matter of minutes. Um, so the the chances of anyone really getting to experience that that isn't in the, the you know the the top the top one percent the top five percent uh, of the most wealthy is is very unlikely, um, and it's a shame because there is there is something called uh, the overview effect which. Uh, 
could really benefit us here on Earth, which is a, a sensation that or a lot of astronauts have written about and spoken about when they come back to Earth. Um, that feeling of when you get uh, up into space and you can look down on the Earth from above and you can see that there are actually no physical borders and, and that it's just this very, um, very fragile a small planet um, with very little living space and you can come back down to earth and you see uh, actually with a renewed kind of uh, desire to help humanity and, and to realize that, you know, we're just this small dot in the universe. Um, and a lot of people could benefit from that. Um, but unfortunately with tourism, that's very unlikely to happen in the near future, especially as it as is, you know, because it's so expensive. And that reminds me of when we were talking with uh, historian uh, Vincent Brown yesterday, and he was talking about the geographical compartmentalization of history. When you look at the Earth and you see that the borders are not existing, they're not really a thing, maybe you'd have a bigger global worldview of how we all interact with each other, not just within our own countries and within our borders. Peter, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. Journalist Peter Ward is author of The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space. Thank you so much for being on the show with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's been great. Take care. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. This week's question from hell is, what awaits you in the off-world colonies? What awaits you on the off-world colonies? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or email myself or Alex at chuck at thisishell.com, or alex at thisishell.com. The winner of this week's question from hell gets Peter's book, The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the privatization of space. Alex, do you have any questions or any of the answers to this week's question from hell? Uh, it's Jonah here. Oh, Jonah, all right. Thanks. Hello. Hello. Um, let's see. Uh, there's some inscrutable gif uh, that Michael <laughs> R. posted of, what is this, from Alien or something? I don't know. Um, <laughs> JC says indentured servitude. Nice. Uh, Jack Waters, uh, Jack W., uh, says another end of the world finally made possible. Uh, Chris L says, my future green ex-wife. <laughs> That's what's on the off-world colonies? Wow. Uh, Karen R also posted uh, a strange gif of a camera zooming in on a woman who's shaking her head. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Total Recall, Alex is saying. Oh, it's from... oh, it's the Arnold Schwarzenegger mask from Total Recall. Oh, okay, I'm not up on my references. Yeah, that's okay. Mm. Uh, Adam A says uh, cannibalism to the <laughs> tune of Vangelis. Um, Scott S says uh, the little button the workers have installed in the workers' quarters of Elon's spaceship to operate the airlock that will protect the integrity of the aircraft as it jettisons Musk into the abyss. Mm, uh, Joanne, I kind of like that one. <laughs> Joanne C says um, F word. Uh, oh, not off word, off world. Um, <laughs> what the hell, F word? I, what F word <laughs> awaits you? <laughs> That's so stupid. I have no clue. Uh, Kevin W says spaghettification. Spaghettification. <laughs> uh, Marco G says uh, contemporary slavery with casual Fridays, extracurricular activities, and off charts suicide rates. That sounds good. Uh, oh, Katie O'Shea. This is my friend. Shout out to Katie. <laughs> uh, oh my God, Katie. Oh, I keep saying people's last names. That's I gotta okay. get used to this. Uh, the same feeling of dis discontent. Um, <laughs> Mark R says fully. <laughs> the same feeling of discontent you have here on Earth. Uh, That's awesome. Mark R says uh, fully automated luxury pansexual space. <laughs> 
Chinese communism. <laughs> um, uh, Andrea J says uh, grilled cheeses, and uh, Walter M says off-world colonialism. Again, leave your answer to this week's question from Mel at our Facebook page, facebook.com/slash/thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either myself or Alex Chuck at thisishell.com. Alex at thisishell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question from Hell wins Peter Ward's book, The Consequential Frontier, Challenging the Privatization of Space. Finally today, I want to read an email we got uh, to Chuck at thisishell.com from Cuba. I know it doesn't take any longer to get here from Cuba. It's just that somebody wrote us from Cuba, which is kind of cool. Olive, who is a student at Escuela Latinoamericana de Medicina, writes, Hi. Started listening to your show last summer and now a big fan. I'll be in Chicago soon. Did your office hours and think and drink change to Fridays? I had written a much more eloquent email about how you inspire me and give me hope, yada, yada, yada. But who has time for all that? I'm just happy you exist, spreading knowledge, dissipating ignorance. And you know, I'll be one of your Patreon subscribers when I'm making that doctor's salary. Take care, and if you want a good interview about the history of Cuba-American friendship caravans, an international school which trains thousands of doctors around the world to go back home to diminish health disparities, including U.S. students like myself, I suggest Gail Walker of IFCO or Catherine Trujillo Hall of International Birthing Project. It's really a wonderful thing they're doing, the best gift I could ever have imagined. Okay, take care and hope to see you first week of February. Please let me know if it will be Wednesdays or Fridays. It's Fridays. Office hours is now on Friday evening starting at 6 o'clock. Thanks, Olive. Thank you, Olive, for the kind words. And yes, we will be following up on your leads to discuss the Escuela Latinoamerica de Medicina, which trains and then exports medical students to around the world. Hey, Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show, unless Jonah has tomorrow's. Uh, I gotcha. All right. Uh, Jennifer Gaddis will be on to talk about her book, The Labor of Lunch, Why We Need Real Food and Real Jobs in American Public Schools. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live at 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com, or listen to the podcast posted shortly after our live stream. And we will have more of your answers to the question from hell tomorrow as well. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gaff tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show are Alex Jerry and, P- and Jonah Tomko-Smith. Thanks to Peter Ward for being today's guest. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, Visit thisishell.com.